Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Luke Haskell Apologetic Show on the Four Persons Network. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, make way for the hammer of heretics himself. Luke Haskell. I know what you're thinking. It's Thursday. It's not Friday. What are we talking about Luke Haskell on a Thursday? Well, you know, sometimes life is like that. you got to adapt. you got to overcome. you got to change. And uh, Luke's not available on Friday, so we decided to do the show Thursday. So, Luke, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good, John. Uh, dealing with the death of the family, so we got a lot of different things going on especially around the weekends. So uh, uh, I figured we'd do this on Thursday, and uh, uh, here I am. Yeah, well, you know that your hearts and prayers, uh, I mean, our thoughts and prayers are with your uh, with your family at this time. And uh, I just want you to know that we appreciate everything that you do for this uh, apostolate that we're trying to grow here. And uh and I'm just glad that we're able to continue with the show. So we're going to continue on the theme we started actually a couple of weeks ago uh, on the priesthood. So why don't you pick up where we left off? Well, we were uh, we were finishing up on the Passover and uh, the Holy Mass being the true Passover. And uh, uh, that is established in the, in a priesthood. And this is a, a huge argument uh, between Catholics and Protestants, and uh, because uh, like Scripture alone, which you know it has to be asserted, or there's really no Protestantism. It's it's almost the same for the, for the priesthood. It has to be asserted that there is no priesthood, or, or else you, uh, you're looking at Scripture in a totally different way. You're looking at all these verses on ritual actually being performed by priests. Uh, if, if if you uh, find out that there truly is a priesthood, and one of the ways they try to separate from the priesthood is they have a traditional understanding of Hebrews that is just plain wrong, and uh, you know it's it, it, it's just fascinating how you know this whole thing developed. But I use the word construct a lot because uh, if you look at you know, how Protestants begin. We had 1,400 years of Catholicism and, you know, uh, you know 500 years of uh, Orthodox. And after 1,500 years of Catholicism, all of a sudden people like Luther, Knox, Calvin started looking at Scripture in a different way. And the purpose of looking at it in a different way, whether it's uh, subconscious or not, was to separate from the Catholic Church. 
So you have 1,500 years of a faith established by God to assist our fallen nature. And then you have man creating uh, a different construct while in fallen nature. Uh, so in this construct, it, its goal to separation from the church, it had to fail in scripture interpretation. There's no way about it because once you, when you try to go against truth, uh, you have to do it almost through a sleight of hand. You have to change things that you know should be seen in a more literal sense into a literal sense, literalist sense, try and explain it away, or things that are seen in a literalist sense and try to place them in a literal sense and, yeah. and explain it away. And there's so many things you have to do. And mm-hmm. one, of, one of those things that, uh, that they did in this tradition is they falsely uh, interpret Hebrews. And Hebrews is just – it's an amazing, beautiful understanding of how Christ fulfilled John Kipper, how he is the true high priest who brought his own body into the holies and has very, very little to do with the ordained priesthood. But they pick up on things such as uh, – I'll, I'll read a few verses. And saying before, sacrifices and oblations and holocausts for sin, thou wouldest not, neither are they pleasing to thee, which are offered according to the law. Then said I, behold, I come to do thy will. O God, he taketh away the first, that he may establish that which follows, in which will we are sanctified by the oblation of the body of Jesus Christ once. And every priest indeed standeth daily ministering and often offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man offering one sacrifice for sins forever sitteth on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting until his enemies be made his footstools. For by one oblation he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So they take this uh, these verses and they use too much of a, of a literal interpretation with them. Because, number one, this is written to, most likely, the church at Jerusalem, and as primary Hebrews who are baptized into the church. You enter the church through baptism. You become a member of the chosen people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, through baptism. And people look at this word royal priesthood, and a lot of them, you know, Protestants think, well, it makes me part of the royal priesthood. No, the, the, the actual acts of being a member of the royal priesthood make you a royal uh, the uh, a member of the royal priesthood the acts and paul tells us he says for as often as we shall eat this bread drink this cup we shall show the death of the lord until he comes again so you're not a member of the royal priesthood fulfilling your office in the priesthood if you're not showing the death of the lord to the father until christ comes again so when they look at the Hebrews and they look at these verses, they say, oh, well, it says right there, uh, you know, Christ is sacrificed once and for all. That's all that's needed, and uh, there's no other priesthood. Well, Christ would not be a high priest unless there's a subordinate priesthood. That's the only reason why he's a high priest. And when we, when we look at this understanding of Hebrews, it has hardly anything to do with the ordained priesthood. It's showing us that 
the sacrifices of bulls and goats uh, basically did not take away sin. So Christ established what would take away sin. And we need to think like a Jewish convert. There's two parts to a sacrifice. There is the, well, there's two main parts. There is the sacrifice. Christ willingly gave himself up. And there's the offering up of the fruit of the sacrifice. In Leviticus 7, we actually even have the word Eucharist because the Eucharist means thanksgiving. There's a thanksgiving offering offered to God, and it is raised into the air. And where do we see the same imagery? We see it in every holy mass, and we picture in our heads, this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. So they, they don't even have a, a, you know, a basic foundation to understand these things because they're not living the sacramental life. They're not seeing the sacramental life. Right. And the other thing is, Luke, they don't understand. I think when you look at Hebrews 7, one of the things that really stands out is they don't understand that we were never saved by the sacrifice of bulls and goats, that the the priesthood of Aaron, the, the, the Levitical priesthood, was a model. It was a foreshadowing. And anyone that was saved under the Levitical priesthood was saved they were grafted in to the uh, to Christ by faith, by anticipation. And we see in Hebrews that the Levitical priesthood is actually replaced by the priesthood of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is this this interesting figure who first appears in Genesis chapter 14 out of nowhere. Uh, even before the Levitical priesthood, and he makes this offering of of uh, bread and wine, and they how do they miss all that? That that, that it's very very clear that 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 the you know the Hebrews seven says you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. How do they fail to connect the dots? Yeah, I, I think they they have this. It's almost a complete separation from the Old Testament, but if the old the Old Testament, the laws of Leviticus, just so many things are there for one purpose. They're there to let our souls see the spiritual reality of our sacraments. And I'll give you a couple examples when it comes to this offering. Uh, when Christ said, He said. Uh, this is the cup of my blood. Do this in, in, in remembrance of me. Well, we, went, we talked about this before where the word remembrance actually is uh, in Greek. Uh, it doesn't do the, you know, the English justice. Uh, it, uh, the word is anomnesis, and it has sacrificial overtones. It's, it's uh, in Wisdom 16.6. It is in sacrificial context. Hebrews 10.3, Leviticus 24.7. And it can be translated, if with these understanding the sacrificial uh, undertones, as offer this memorial offering, our memorial sacrifice. And so we see this, and clearly in Leviticus 24 7, uh, it says, If at any time you shall have a banquet end of your, of your festival days, and on the first day of, of your months you shall sound the trumpets over the holocaust and the sacrifices, the peace offerings, that they may be a remembrance of your God. And uh, uh, that's Numbers 10. Leviticus 4.7 says, 
and thou shalt put Leviticus 24-7. Thou shalt put upon them the dearest frankincense, that the bread may be for a memorial of the oblation of the Lord. So when Christ says, this is the cup of my new covenant, the new covenant of my blood, do this in remembrance of me. You're, you're, you're getting words from Jesus who put in place all the Jewish sacrifices. So this, so when he says remembrance, he's saying offer this as the true oblation, not not the types of Leviticus twenty four seven, but myself, because he says this is my body, this is my blood. So this two parts to the sacrifice is is very clear to see all across you know Paul's you know uh, writings. This is the cup of benediction that we bless. Is this not participation in, in the blood of Christ? And he uh, shows us this imagery of what actually happens when we see uh, the Galatians were falling back into Mosaic law, the letter of the law, the rituals of the law. And he says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who be, before your very eyes, Christ is portrayed as crucified before you. That's the mass. So when in Hebrews, uh, when when uh, Paul, or it could have been Paul, but we're not really sure. But uh, when he's talking about offering one sacrifice for sins, we have to consider the fact that there are two parts to a sacrifice. And so this one sacrifice for sins is eternally presented by the royal priesthood united to heaven itself. And we could go on and we could see more of this imagery where uh, he goes on after he describes this one sacrifice. He says, having therefore, brethren, a confidence in entering into the holies by the blood of Christ, a new and living way, which he hath dedicated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with clean water. So what we see here is first we see the image of Yom Kippur, but we know that Paul tells us we are the body of Christ. Those who partake of the one bread are part of the one body. Peter even goes further and says we're partakers of the divine nature. And so as is partakers of the divine nature, as the body of Christ, you know, Christ is the head of the body. And he's showing us spiritually that we enter into uh, the holies through the veil. And the veil is his very flesh. So we're entering the body of Christ spiritually. And in this state of being is where we present with Christ as our, as our high priest the true Passover for the general redemption of the world by always keeping the Eucharist before the Father. And all of this together just explodes in Hebrews 12 because you put this all together with Paul saying, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the new Jerusalem. You have come to the spirits that just made perfect. You come to thousands of angels. You have come to Jesus Christ, mediator 
of the new covenant and a sprinkling of blood that speaks better than that of Abel. And so it's they can't picture this because they don't live it. You have to live the faith. You have to see it through the faith of the you know of the one church God established. And like Paul says about all of this, we walk by faith, not by sight. So I I see how they try to get around it. They basically try to try to say that we're re-sacrificing Christ over and over and over again, uh, and they try and equate the. Um, they, they basically try to join the sacrifice and the offering together as if they're a single thing. When obviously, as you pointed out, they're not. But even even considering that, and and I'm not saying I agree with them. I'm not saying they're making a strong argument. But even with that weak argument, Luke, how do they how do they get around Melchizedek? How do they possibly get around that? Well, they they, they really can't. I mean, they just have to ignore the whole part about bread and wine. I mean, they really do. I mean, it really, it's almost like they have to take it out of their whole because Melchizedek doesn't fit into their into their theology at all. And when, especially when you read, it says he has no beginning, he has no end, he has no genealogy. You know, there's a lot of people that have conjectured that Melchizedek is actually uh, an Old Testament manifestation of Christ, that Christ actually traveled through time to the Old Testament. I, I don't know, you know, if the church has ever, you know, made any kind of formal, uh, you know, uh, stance on that one way or another, but I know at at a, at a minimum, Melchizedek is a very, very strong typology of Christ. And then I when you enter... Another... Go, ahead. Go ahead. I think there's there, there's another theory on that, too. and uh, I don't know if that came from Scott Hahn or not. It's, it's been so long ago. But one of the theories that it might have been Shem. That it might have been what? Shem, Noah's son. Oh, okay. I'd be interested in hearing. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing you do a show about that uh, uh, one day. Oh, to, I, 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 that's as far as I go. I just remember somebody talking about that, and I said, "Well, that's kind of fascinating." But Matizek is, is is from Jerusalem, so you know there, there's you have Jerusalem also, you know, right right there. You know, the, king, the of king of Salem, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just yeah. wondering, like I said, how, at, at the end of the day, I mean, what do they do with Melchizedek? What do they do with the bread and wa- the wine? It doesn't fit into their uh, theology at all. What do they do with all the memorials of the Old Testament that have to be before God? And these memorials are bread and wine. The memorials are images of Christ in the, you know, in, in, in the Lamb, you know, I'm the true Lamb of God. You know, yeah. uh, memorial sacrifices in order to give this oath, to continue in this oath of keeping keeping the commandments. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, they are correct, though. In one in one respect, they are corrected in the respect that Jesus did die. He suffered and died once for the redemption of all of, of all mankind. I was talking to a friend of mine, a Protestant friend of mine, last night, uh, 
the issue that we have, the difference that we have is how is the graces earned by Christ at Calvary applied to you and me? And that's where we kind of, that's where the road separates as far as our understanding and theirs, right? Well, yeah, but even when he says we were sanctified once, he's talking to people who were baptized into the church. Our baptism is redemption, sanctification, justification before God. And as we discussed before, there is no receiving the graces of entering the spiritual reality of that new Jerusalem with uh, the, the head of the body, presenting the true Passover, you know, without that baptism. Therefore, you hear right. things like, uh, you can't pour new wine into old uh, old wineskins. You hear things like you can't go to the wedding without your wedding garments. These are references to a purification before the, the wedding. And what's the wedding? Well, the wedding feast of the Lamb is the Holy Mass. Right. So let me ask you an, uh, kind of an oddball question because it, it, the, I've been confronted with this question. So... Obviously, Catholics believe the way that we participate in Christ's sacrifice at, at, at Calvary, the way that we memorialize that is, is the Mass, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Eucharist. How was Christ's sacrifice and death at Calvary made available to the Old Testament saints? How, how exactly did that work? Well, I, I think what it did was it just they the ones who lived under the law, if you could read about the you know the Old Testament, they were righteous and they were just people. And so this they who were righteous and they were just was assumed into the body of Christ uh when uh when uh Christ uh went to make a prepare a place for us. Before you have this image of short or Abraham's bosom. And so is it is it, it kind of the idea is it kind of the idea that that the Old Testament saints showed so much faith that it can be assumed that had they had the opportunity to believe in the Eucharist they would have is that is that the assumption that's being made? Well, they they they, they, they probably I think this uh, when uh, when Scripture tells us that there's going to be a prophecy of the law written on our hearts. They were under a different uh, level of faith and a different level of grace. I mean, they did not have everything that, that we have. We have this spiritual encounter with the Holy Spirit that was not present among this, uh, you know, the Israelites. I mean, they are considered to be a stiff-necked people. You know, they're always uh, fighting against God. And they didn't have this spiritual union. But those who followed under the law were considered righteous. So I, I really can't say whether or not, you know, they could have accepted the Eucharist because I think that in itself is, is a grace that we receive. And uh, uh, like Paul talks about, Paul uses the, uh, you know, um, uh, Old Testament when he talks about, I will have mercy on those I have mercy. So we have been given such a greater mercy, such a good, you know, just an incredible grace, even to be able to believe this. And we've been given a state of love in, in our souls uh, due to the cross. 
that uh, is gives us this ability to tr- truly see the love in the Eucharist. So we're talking with Luke Haskell tonight about the priesthood. If you'd like to call in with your comment or question, the number is 515-602-9655. Again, the number is 515-602-9655. Okay, so where do we go next? Well, we like before we established Passover, we just just discussed Hebrews. Now things, you know, we see Hebrews definitely different, you know, and we could uh, – you know, prove our understanding all the way back to Christ. Well, we could do the same thing historically, you know, uh, with the priesthood. And so when I when I have somebody who's telling me that there is no priesthood, my first question to them is, okay, since the Arian heresy basically almost split the church, and the early church was, you know, just adamant about following Paul, and keeping perfectly united, one mind and one doctrine, then when did the priesthood begin? And show me the history, uh, you know, show, show me the all across the pages of history, screaming out of the first few hundred years of Christianity about this new ordained priesthood after the apostolic time. You can't do it because it didn't exist after, after, uh, exist after. It didn't come into existence after apostolic times. So it's just being rational. It's just being reasonable is the first step to seeing the priesthood. Like if, if we want examples, in the teaching of the apostles Syriac, uh, second century, maybe third century uh, document, it says the city of Rome and all Italy and Spain and, and Britain and Gaul, together with all the rest of the countries round about them, received the apostles' ordinations to priesthood from Simon Kephas, who went up from Antioch. Uh, it says, and by ordination of the priesthood, which the apostles themselves have received from our Lord, did the gospel wing its way rapidly to the four corners of the world. Irenaeus, writing, uh, he's around from 120 to AD, he says, and all the apostles of the Lord are priests, who do inherit here neither lands or houses, but serve God in the altar continuously. So we have this historical record. We understand uh, this information to be in the first few hundred years of Christianity. And nowhere do we see anybody contradicting uh, uh, these understandings. Yeah, you know, it's a very strong argument that you just made, because if the priesthood was, was something new, uh, you have to be able to identify a time in which it was created. In other words, if, if you could show me that in 110 AD there's no priesthood, but in 120 AD there's a priesthood, well, then, then you have a valid argument. But if there's, you're right, there's no point at which we can say the priesthood did not exist. Uh, the, the second part of that argument is that uh, their theology presuppose, and again, I had a friend made this argument to me the other day, that uh, when Christ died, the veil in the temple was was torn in two. He said, well, that means the end of the priesthood. Well, show me. Show me where it means that. I mean, that's that's taking a leap. That's taking an assumption. But if you're going to take a sola scriptura 
viewpoint as as Protestants claim to take, well, you should be able to show me that that this is where Jesus said there will be no more priesthood. Instead, what we see in Hebrews is we see exactly the opposite. We don't see no more priesthood. We see a temporal priesthood replaced by an eternal priesthood. We even see the results of that veil where the Holy of Holies becomes one room in the Holy Mass because we know the table of the bread of the presence, which had, you know, the manna and the libation offering, the, uh, the, the bread and, and the libation offering, uh, is, has become the Eucharist. The menorah has become the life-giving cross. The St. Thomas cross found in uh, uh, India is actually a combination of a cross and the menorah. So they had this understanding spiritually even back then. We know that the uh, the stand for the incense and the smoke going up to the heavens we see in Revelations. This is the prayers of the saints are like the incense uh, the, uh, flowing to the throne of, uh, throne of heaven, going to the throne of heaven. So uh, we we see all this imagery and how does that occur? It occurred because the holies and the holy of holies becomes one room in the holy mass. And again, in that imagery, you look at Hebrews twelve twenty-two. So, so there's another uh, again. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean. I didn't realize I was stopping right in the middle of a thought. Go ahead and please finish. No, it's just. Uh, but you can't see that unless you look at Hebrews in the way it's supposed to be looked at, unless you don't deny the priesthood. Okay, so another question that was fired at me, um, why does Mary figure so predominantly in all of this? Uh, for, for instance, uh, one example, uh, when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles and, and they, you know, they had that wonderful uh, Pentecost experience, uh, the mother of Jesus was there with them in, in, the, in, the, in their presence. Uh, she participated in, in that first novena. So, how does Mary tie in to the uh, uh, establishment of the priesthood, and what is the what is the Old Testament symbolism that's being fulfilled there? Well, Mary can't consecrate the Eucharist; only the priest can. But Mary is there as our spiritual mother. Uh, Mary's, uh, and we go back to Genesis where we see an image of Mary and uh, uh, because we see the Eve who chose uh, ego, chose to go against God for taking of the apple. And then we hear of, we see an image of a woman who will choose God, who will choose to follow uh, truth, who will not be, uh, of ego, because she was the head of the serpent. Right, the woman, a woman who will be in per- perpetual enmity with the with the devil. Yeah, and a lot of people they try to say that Jesus is the one who's crushing the head, but actually, uh, uh, you had even some Jewish historians who basically say it's both. It's 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 kind of a general neutral neutral thing where it comes out as both. So. He and the woman crushes the head, but what is the head? It's a, it's a symbol of, of pride. It's a symbol of egotism. So 
Mary is actually a practice of humility. And everything that God does for us is to return our souls to the garden spiritually. So we need to reverse this egotism. We need to reverse this idea that we could depend on anything but God. And Mary is part of that process. You know, uh, there's nobody close to God. We're all creatures. Mary's a creature. We're all infinitely less than God. But God chose Mary in this spiritual journey as our spiritual mother and as an example of humility. And uh, I've heard uh, different uh, exorcists talk about this. And they say that Satan would rather be taken down by Jesus than by Mary because Mary is a creature. And due to Satan's ego, he would rather be taken down, uh, you know, by Jesus. Yeah, there's a, there's a fascinating story by uh, St. Louis de Montfort about the uh, uh, St. Dominic was, was preaching in the uh, Albigensian that was possessed by 15,000 demons appeared. And uh, St. Dominic, demanded of him you know which which saint do you fear the most and 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 he didn't want to say so and then our lady appears and whacks him on the head with a with a golden rod and says answer my servant at once very interesting uh story but i wanted to go back to what you said a minute ago about genesis 3 uh uh-huh. for those for those who insist that it is you know that can only be interpreted as he very interesting that the word uh, that's translated to she in the Douay in Genesis 3, if you go to the King James version of the Bible, uh, there's either two or three. I think it's two. I think it's verse 12 in Genesis 20 that it's it, the same word is translated to she. So that uh, that shows that even in the Protestant scriptures, that it, it proves that that word can be translated as as she. And if you look at the grammatical context, you know the subject. What, what usually chose the gender of the of what usually decided the gender of the pronoun is the subject that it points to, and it's very very clearly yeah. saying that the enmity between the serpent. The enmity was between the serpent and the woman. Pronoun would would point to the subject, which is the woman, and you you got to kind of torture the grammar there to make it apply to the offspring of the woman. But the enmity is between you and the woman, but he will crush your head. It, it kind of you have to torture the language in order to to arrive at that. But anyway, I just wanted to interject that. Uh, please continue. Yeah, uh, you have to go, you know, how, how it flows. And uh, you, you have people like you had uh, Philo, uh, Jude- uh, Josephus, a uh, Roman historian, Moses, uh, Mammon, Mammonites. Uh, he, was a, he was a medieval Jewish philosopher. And they all argued that the Hebrew parallel poetry of Genesis 3.15 demands the reading, she shall crush. But if you go to... Oh, let me see here. Uh, the differences result from the ambiguity of the Hebrew as to who will do the crushing and whose heel will be struck at. Pronouns in question refer to the preceding subject in the sentence. However, there are two subjects. The woman and her seed takes a neutral path. Seed is grammatically neutral. 
she assumes that it refers to the woman, and he assumes that it refers to the seed, whom we know to be Jesus Christ, of course. So Jerome, perhaps based on the Septuagint or theological considerations, we don't know, uh, chose to translate it as, as she. But it, it, uh, most modern translations choose he, but actually some actually choose it. And if you look at however it would perhaps not be entirely erroneous, when translating into the vernacular to consider that ipsa is the word that's used, actually might be both feminine and neutral, thus referring to both. So it's it's fascinating when we look at things like this. But uh, when it comes back to Mary, if Peter says that we are partakers of divine nature, and Mary, God chose Mary from the beginning of eternity to be his mother, how much more of a partaker of divine nature is the mother of God? You yeah. know? And so we, we lose the holiness when we lose the humility. And then we lose the, the, the imagery, the spiritual beauty of things. Well, think, so think about this. To, think about mm-hmm. this real quick, Luke. If you talk to any, any, uh, Protestant, and you ask them, was there ever a moment in your time? Now, now, you know, you and I might refer to adoration as one of these moments, but is there any moment in your life when you truly felt like you were in the absolute presence of God? And and you know, they would answer, well, yes, of course. There's you know, there's been you know one time or another. Well, she actually was for thirty years. You cannot be in the absolute literal presence of God for thirty years <laughs> and 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 not uh, have it affect you on a deep, profound spiritual level. And do they even stop to stop to consider that the fact that there is no other human being before or since who can say that? Even Joseph was not present in Jesus' life as long as Mary was. Uh, and yeah, I, so... Go ahead. Go ahead. You know, I think a lot of the stuff is they lose, you know, uh, I hate to talk about people this way, but uh, I'm talking about the, just the, uh, the concepts in general. They lose common sense in their process of trying to separate from the church. I'll give you an example. I was having a debate with somebody, and they said, Jesus, you know, being in the womb of Mary, uh, the sacredness of that is no different than the sacredness of where Jesus slept every night. So I'm I'm just going, what the heck are we doing here? I mean, uh, if we go back to Moses and, and the bush, we don't even see an incarnation of Christ here. We see the the bush. And we see God telling Moses to remove his sandals because he walks on holy ground. Right, right. So, so then another, another example would be Uzzah being struck dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, exactly. So what this guy's saying then in this, in this foolishness is that Moses' dirty, dirty feet are more sacred than the womb of Mary. It's just a, the, it just blows my mind sometimes. It's like Catholics have to defend holiness and sacredness over and over and over again. 
fascinating. So if, if we go on, uh, if we get back on uh, online here for the priestly, for the priests, uh, there is logical deduction in a lot of what Paul says. And uh, this is something I try to approach people with in order just to get it into their head. And I'm going to give a few verses, and I'm going to leave out one word. And this word is, is, is the word that makes these verses complete. First okay. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete to ordain blank in every city as I have ordained you. First Timothy 5.17, let the who rules well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Uh, James 5.13, is any man sick among you? Let him bring in the of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith shall save the sick man, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he be in sin, his sins will be forgiven. That I should be a of Christ among the Gentiles, sanctifying the gospel of God, that the oblation of the Gentiles may be made acceptable and sanctified in the Holy Ghost. Now, all of this is only complete with the word priest. Right. So, and, it, and it's just, it is just simple reasoning that is that is left out. If what is we, the actual the, word? It's presbyteros uh, is the actual it, word, right? Yeah, which we'll get when we shorten that in the English for a vernacular, we get the word priest. That's that, it's that simple. But if right. we were to do a, a word study on this, elder and presbyter are in the etymology of priests. Uh, they try to use the word harius to confuse things. But harius means someone dedicated to the temple, a priest, but the word is not derived phonetically nor etymologically uh, from harius. It's derived from presbyterus. Pres, uh, Even the, more, uh, the, uh, the morphology is different. <coughs> Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> so the apostles wrote while the temple was still standing. And so they needed to distinguish uh, here uh, uh, things. So the difference between the priests of the old covenant that offered bulls and goats and the priests of the new that ministered in the sacraments, they had to distinguish the difference. So it looks like they did so by modeling the priesthood according to 70 elders who had uh, the hands of Moses and Aaron laid on them to contain the, the grace uh, of God and uh, this is what bishops have done to, to priests for 2,000 years in the Catholic Church. Therefore, Paul tells Timothy, you do not lay your hands on anybody in haste. Uh, in other words, he's saying try to make sure they're going to be worthy of the priesthood. So up until the golden calf, the elders were firstborn family priests. After the golden calf, the biblical priests, uh, in this sense, Harriet, belonging to the temple, was formed. Uh, through Christ, the consecrated uh, firstborn, the true priesthood, was restored in the new covenant. And uh, we look at this, uh, these, these types, and uh, Exodus 12:22 says, Moses called the elders together to, to communicate the Passover commands, and Moses was a type, you know, for Christ. And he said to them, with desire, I desire to eat this pass with you before I suffer. This is what Christ said in Luke the 2215. So Christ established his priesthood to give the true Passover commands. 
the Holy Mass is a true Passover for the general redemption of the world. That's how Christ redeemed the world. So we see these parallels in, in, in the typology everywhere. So at what point would, uh, and, and this was another question that was, that was posed to me uh, last night, actually last night. And he says, so at what point was the, um, you know, was the priesthood instituted? I said, well, at the Last Supper. And then the person asked me a very interesting question. Uh, and and I didn't know exactly how to answer it. So, um, I mean, I know the answer is yes, but I didn't know exactly how to explain it. And that is when Jesus offered the bread and the wine at the Last Supper, when he was still alive, were they actually receiving the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? And how is that possible? Now I told him I said yes they were. How is that possible? Were they were they receiving the glorified Christ before he was glorified or were they receiving Christ in the present uh, state that he was in at the time he made the offering? Can can you please expand on that? You know, it, it it's something that uh is left up to uh, to faith. I mean, because we really don't know. We could we could theorize. I mean, we could say that God is outside of the concept of time and space. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Word. The Word became flesh. Well, what is the Word? Well, the entire universe vibrates. So what stains the entire universe is the Word, the vibrations. Uh, outside of the concept of, of time and space, he has power over all matter in time and space. So... Can he present his body right there? Where uh, Job uh, basically said, God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are a thousand times above our ways. So we're not going to get there, you know, except for just faith to believe God's words. This is my body. Okay. And I'm sorry. Please continue. I think a lot of this stuff, you know, God designed to be kind of perfectly ambiguous. Just because Catholics have to have more faith, the Orthodox also, but more faith than, than anybody you know on earth. I mean, to actually take God at His word. I mean, this, you know, even though if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, we could move mountains. I mean, this is a, a, a justification through faith, right there. Right. Right. Yeah, because many of the things that Jesus said at the time that He said them would have been. Uh, abhorrent and shocking to his audience. Uh, I mean, when he's saying, uh, "You must take up your cross and follow me." I mean, we, we we see that in in its proper context now and understand that. But a first century Jew would have been horrified at the at the idea of take up your cross because you know at that point uh, the the cross was nothing but but a symbol of of, of torture and humiliation and uh, and uh, the most horrible death imaginable. Well, it's also the sign of somebody who was cursed. Cursed is the one who goes to the cross. Right. So that's right. why you have uh, Simeon saying he will be a sign of contradiction and a sword will pierce your heart so the thoughts may be revealed. That sign of contradiction is the cross, is, is, is the, way, the way I see it also. If, if, if we're continuing for, for the priesthood, 
there's an interesting word study, uh, presbyteros. It says, uh, at first you had the word mean elder, elderly man or presbyter. The word's used 66 times in the New Testament has its primary background in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition where elders are referred to the tribal leaders of Israel appointed by Moses. See, this is in Exodus 24, Numbers 11. And the members of the city's judicial council, see this in Joshua 20, by the first century, it was a collective name for Pharisaic teachers. We see this in Matthew 15 too. For a group within the Jewish high court of the Sanhedrin and for the senior officials of a Jewish synagogue, so this notion of a ruling religious elder is what carried over into the Christian tradition, and it was applied to its own appointed leaders. We can see this in Acts 14, uh, Acts 15, 17. An elder or presbyter uh, at this time came to refer to as an ordained shepherd of the church who preached the gospel and administered the sacraments, which we see them doing in 1 Timothy 5:17, Titus 1, 5, of course. And uh, the English word for priest, of course, is derived from the Greek term. So it's just a simply shortened uh, from, from elder. And it was in scripture already uh, how the transition occurred. So when a Protestant tries to say that uh, an elder or a presbyter has nothing to do with the priest, it's just a lack of knowledge, even in the understanding of how it developed uh, uh, by looking at the proper exegesis of its development. So then differentiate that uh, biblically with a deacon or a bishop. Deacon is a, is, is a servant. Bishop is uh, Episcopal. And uh, they are the overseers of the priests. And of course, uh, all, all bishops are, are, are priests. And the deacon served the bishop as as, as a servant. Uh, if, if if we could go further and look at just the etymology, and this is just typical etymology you bring up, and it says Middle English uh, pressed, clerical ranking below a bishop, and above a deacon, a parish priest, from Old English prios, which probably was shortened from the older Germanic form represented by Old Saxon and Old High German prester. Old Frisian prester, all from vulgar Latin prester, priest, from the Latin uh, prester, prester, elder, from Greek presbyteros, uh, elder of the two, old, uh, venerable, or comparable to pres. And uh, modern uh, word uh, uh, after uh, its development is just simply priest. And so they use the word presbyter in uh, the oldest document. And uh, in the historical record, and it shows in those historical records all the way back to Christ, the priest consecrating the Eucharist. But then we also see the priesthood being passed on by the bishop. And we see this in scripture of Paul to Timothy uh, is one example. So for them to deny the office of the priesthood, then how do they explain that? That when, when Paul says to Timothy, that you received your authority by the laying on of my hands. That's clearly uh, Paul ordaining Timothy as a priest. Exactly. And in Titus 1.5, it says right there 
why Paul, uh, you know, uh, had uh, uh, Titus in Crete. It says that uh, he, he, he told him to go out to all the cities and to ordain priests as he has appointed him to do so. And that's the Dewey Reigns Bible in which from we get the, the word presbyter to, to priest. So, and it's, it's just so overwhelming, uh, all that information. But, you know, there's even more because, you know, we look, you know, verses that obviously, you know, were priestly functions. We looked at the etymology. We looked at the word study. But Paul himself, you know, uh, when he, he says he, he sanctifies an oblation. So he says he sanctifies an oblation uh, for the Gentiles through the Holy Spirit. So it says that I should be a minister of Christ Jesus among the Gentiles, sanctifying the gospel of God, that the oblation of the Gentiles may be made acceptable and sanctified in the Holy Ghost. In the Greek, he's using a variant of Herius, which is belonging to the temple, because he's showing the, uh, you know, the sacrificial nature. And he's saying, as a minister in the priestly service, who through the Holy Spirit sanctifies uh, an oblation for the Gentiles who are in the church. If we look at Berean Study Bible, they, they caught up. The, some of these Bibles actually caught this. It says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. The word English, the World English Bible says that I should be a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest, the good news of God. The Young's literal translation, for my being a servant of Jesus Christ to the nations, acting as a priest in the good news of God. So it's just so overwhelming. It's an exegesis. It's in morphology. It's in the historical records. And what is Paul really doing here? Well, an oblation is an unbloody offering. He's saying that he's participating at a, as a mediator with the Holy Spirit to sanctify, to make holy this oblation, which in most of the time is a cereal offering. What is the cereal offering? It's the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. So then you can hear the objection from our Protestant brothers and sisters. Well, see, hot, he used that word mediator. When the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, uh, Jesus Christ, how, how do you answer that objection? Uh, I'd say you believe in the Trinity. <laughs> I mean, there's one mediator between us and the first person of the Trinity. That is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And yet, in this mediation... Uh, you don't see mediation as simply prayer in Scripture. He's mediating the entire New Covenant. He's mediating as the high priest Melchizedek who offers the sacrifice of bread and wine. So if you look at first uh, when Paul's talking to Timothy about that mediation, we take into consideration that Timothy is the bishop of Ephesus, and Timothy would be living the sacramental life. So Paul at first is describing what we need to do in the Mass. He says uh, he wants us to offer prayer, supplication, intercession, and thanksgiving, Eucharistasis, for all men. For there is one mediator between us and the Father, that is Jesus Christ. So right there you have what we do at every Holy Mass. So what they're doing is they're using false exegesis, uh, um, uh, taking the word mediator, 
just like this whole false construct that was created, we go right back to the beginning of our conversation where they had to remove truth by creating half-truths and, and just different understandings, uh, literal uh, instead of literals, literals instead of literal. And he's taking these, uh, these images of uh, what is the holy mass, and they're isolating it to mediator, meaning who we pray to. Right. Luke, um, could I, uh, we're, we're almost at the end here. Could we have the, uh, the name of the uh, uh, family member that you just recently lost? Yeah, it's uh, my father-in-law, Al Hessian. Uh, His name is Al? Yeah, he's a very good man. Yeah, so and I would ask, so, go ahead, I'm sorry. He went so fast. It was just, we're still trying to catch up. Yeah. Well, one week we find out his whole body, and the next week he's gone. Very sorry to hear that. I want to ask everyone listening to this program and every supporter of uh, the four persons to uh, pray for Al, for his repose, and pray for the entire family. And uh, I want to close by offering these prayers uh, for Al, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let your perpetual light shine upon him. May his soul and the souls of all the faithfully departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Luke, uh, this is a great, great, great program tonight. We really got into a, a, a lot of stuff, and um, I can't wait to um, see where we're going to pick it up next weekend. And uh, maybe we'll go on session since we established the priesthood that the, that we go to for it. <laughs> Yeah. So I would uh, appreciate it if you would offer our sincere um, condolences to your entire family and you have our, our, our love and prayers and support at this time. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. God bless you and good night. Good night.